let us not pretend that that there is some way out there of making and shipping shit around the world that is like near free to the environment. It's just not. Hey, this is Z Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Peter. Welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks, as always, to our supporters who throw us as little as a buck a month to help keep the lights on at the laboratory. Uh, if you want to jump in and help out over there, you can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com. So we're back. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our guest this week, Peter Daring, who is the founder and CEO of one of uh, Brian and I's like favorite companies <laughs> out there. So it's hard to not, we tried totally. to get all the fanboy out before we started recording, <laughs> but it'll still be there. Um, I think we'll just kind of do our usual and throw to, to Peter to talk a little bit about how how you ended up there sure. in a position running yeah, this yeah, company yeah. that we're so stoked about. I'm happy to. Well, you, you left the audience hanging the name of the company. <laughs> oh, I did. It's actually Peak Bad Design. Heart. No, that's quite all right. Peak Design. Peak Design, which is not plural. <laughs> it's Peak Design. Um, the, the funniest thing is when you get onto a podcast or something like that and people go, man, I'm such a huge fan of Peak Designs. It's like, yeah, I'm a big fan of companies like Apple's as well. Uh, anyway, maybe one day we'll be able to uh, shirk the plural confusion. But... So, which is worse, forgetting the plural or just forgetting the entire um, name? I'd say <laughs> forgetting the forgetting the name is totally acceptable. We're, we're, we're in good shape there. Uh, anyway, Peak Design is the name of the company that I started uh, nine years ago, nine and a half years ago, here in San Francisco. Um, I think you get to date your company's existence on when you quit your old job. So, um, that's where <laughs> we're at. And the original idea was, I guess the original idea was to quit my old job and just to do something on my own. Not that, <laughs> that job was, was, was that, was that awful. I was a construction engineer, um, which is incredible like building buildings. That's sort of what I wanted to do. Um, you know, for, for a long time and I was doing it, but the problem with building buildings is you got to have your ass in the chair at like 6.55 a.m. every day. And if you show up at 7.05, they call you part-time Pete. And I didn't, I didn't really enjoy going to bed at a reasonable hour in my low twenties. So, um, when I did a, uh, when I took a leave of absence from, from that job, uh, two years into it, and observed how pleasant it was to to be on my own schedule. That's kind of what, what what gave me the entrepreneurial bug. That and just a bunch of ideas that I kind of generated along the way. So anyway, nine years ago, quit that job, um, and uh, was was totally taken by this idea that there was a cooler way to hold a camera. Or maybe not cooler, but just better especially for certain circumstances. So um, dreamed up this clip that would mount onto backpack straps and onto belts and rigidly hold the camera in place. Um, I designed that thing in Google SketchUp because I knew nothing else. <laughs> um, cool. And yeah, like 
15 months after I quit my job, I put it on Kickstarter and it <laughs> through no, like <laughs> only through the merits of the product did it absolutely crush it. And what I mean by that is I had no advertising strategy. I had no PR contacts. I just put the thing up there wow. on Kickstarter and by day two, when Gizmodo picked it up and ran a story about it, it was well on its way to being the second most funded Kickstarter project of all time at the time, back in 2011. That's incredible. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's so many, there's so many angles that I want to chase <laughs> in that, but it's, it's like my, my recollection was you had a pretty good video. Too. Which is funny. Um, I think that if um, you were to watch that video right now, you might, or, you might eat the words, or at yeah. least I have. But at the time, at the time, there was no piece of work that I'd ever put out that I was more proud of than that video. And cool. Um, it just goes to show you the state, uh, kind of the rate of change that we've all observed. And 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 I think that I mean I don't know. Pick any industry, and everything has just progressed so so quickly. But I think especially yeah. media and the access to like phenomenal optics, editing software, um, all of these things have improved so drastically and the production value on all things media has gone through the roof. So, drones. Drones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge one. I used to have to, it was like, okay, I used to have to tell bands, if you want that shot, we have to rent a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. And they do it sometimes <laughs> for at the cost. Which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, if you're guns and roses, yeah, if you're guns yeah. and roses, okay. that's right. And now, and now, my my eight year old daughter has a drone, and she doesn't even like it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, yeah, I've got like yeah. three drones that people have given me because they they played with them and got tired. <laughs> yeah, like this year. So I think, I think in the territory that that Brian and I talk about a lot, uh, more more personally, but occasionally on the yeah. podcast, I think. The the cool thing I think you achieved at just the right time with Kickstarter around that was like you you created you know a, a product functionally that you know solved a problem that you were having but that like literally Brian and I were mm -hmm. having also and we would sit around and go if I if maybe mm -hmm. if it like you know and, and just it ends up having the skills to design it and the motivation to design it and actually getting out there and doing it and then having a place like Kickstarter to put it it's so much a perfect storm yeah. of all these different things. That's right. But also just such a cool, you know, and so on one, on one level, it's like, uh, thanks for being that guy, <laughs> you know, who, who went far <laughs> enough to, who went further than me and Brian sitting around going, you know, you really should have like a holster. What if it were like a holster, you know, like for your camera that, you know, um, but then man, it just goes, it goes so much further than that in terms of what you've built with with peak design past that like i, I it's it's uh i was remarking to my wife the other day because we were in uh, mm -hmm. rei where is you know one of the places people might recognize the brand from the mm -hmm. camera section there and i was you know and, and literally every time i walk past it i go hey i backed their first <laughs> project on kickstarter and i'm still like i have a personal sense of pride for being involved in the on some little oh, level in the sort of evolution really of the cool. whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Just even beyond, beyond kick-ass products. So there's so yeah. many other, like when I say there's so many things to talk about, it's like, I could talk about Kickstarter for an hour, 
but I also want to talk about the and, company and the mission. And you, guys, you guys are obviously <laughs> not alone there by any stretch. That's, that is a, that's a goddamn modern miracle that there are so many yeah. people who, who appropriately feel like they were a part of getting geek design started because uh-huh. they were, and they yeah. continue to be, and they continue to drive us forward. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of people out there who feel at least on some level, a, a, a slightly personal connection, both to me and to the extended peak design team at this point. And mm-hmm. I don't think they're wrong to feel that connection. You know, this was life changing shit that happened. Yeah. And, um, everyone who backed that project was a part of it. Yeah. No doubt. I love to hear you say it like that too. And- it's, it's great that you appreciate that as the business owner, because there's that shift in general happening with, uh, uh, awareness of corporate structure and corporate governance. And, and I don't hate capitalism, but people, there, there are issues with it. Right. So sure. it's great to see, to have that perspective as you're running a business, right? Who, who is, who and what is this really for? Ultimately it's, it's to make life better more livable, uh, for myself, for my family, for the people who work for me, for the people who buy a product. Right. It's that's right. Well, we'll get we'll get more into that when we actually talk about <laughs> purpose and, and and mission of peak design. But I also want to pay just a little bit of creed to what you called the perfect storm. Um, you nailed it, man! Like it was a perfect storm of timing and of this idea, which I absolutely was not alone in having. Like the idea that cameras were a pain in the ass to hold was well known <laughs> by just about everyone who'd ever hiked in the woods or on the mountains with a camera, and just a just a lot of luck that um, I was the first one to take that problem far enough to actually do something about it, and that Kickstarter came around at the right time, and that you know the manufacturing link between Asia and the United States made it possible to make a mm. machined metal product for someone that had no experience making products before. Like they, the, the the perfect storm, the, the amount of variables in there go go far deeper than those. But um, especially retrospectively, I've been able to acknowledge the incredible, um, frankly, luck of timing that contributed to Peak Design's initial success and um, and then our ability to just keep rolling that forward and doubling down on that year after year. But it is really that initial spark that is to uh, blame, if you will, for the success <laughs> that Peak Design has now. Well, and I have to say, as an entrepreneur, just personally, I appreciate that you, like you, you even own that and sort of talk about, it's not like what I was trying to tee up when I say perfect storm, but there's always this, you know, as, as somebody trying to get projects off the ground, you spend a lot of time at networking events and panels and things like that. And there's always that, that part in the panel where the, the, you know, the, the message is you can do it. Everybody, all you got to do is grind and this and that and another thing. And then you get to that part where somebody goes, well, how did you something? And then they drop the X factor. That's <laughs> right. Not replicable. Oh, well, my uncle runs yeah, Sony yeah, yeah, pictures, yeah. you know, like you go, Oh, Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I get that you still bust your ass, but also right. I can't replicate that piece. My uncle doesn't right. run for Sony pictures. And in the know, case whatever, of the so. design, I guess the part uh, that is not replicable is like, it was a great idea. And, <laughs> and, and I do say that with, with, with a certain amount of pride um, and not because I'm a genius, but because I happened upon that problem so acutely 
and endeavored to solve it. But the reason it's successful is because it was a definite, it was a very real problem that I was solving for the right price in an elegant fashion. And that's why Peak Design was successful. There is no other magic. I, I like every day I get about three emails from people who are um, trying to start Kickstarters of their own and they mm-hmm. want to know the magic, right? And they want to know the secret, secret sauce. And the secret sauce is have a great idea and execute on it really well. Yeah. Yeah, I I imagine there's an email right. sitting in admin my inbox or in our archive where we sent that link to each other and we're like, dude, this is the thing we need all the time that we're always talking about when we're camping. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> totally. Yeah, for sure. Um but yeah, so I mean, you know, certainly when I say that it's not to you know, it it's it's just an interesting conversation in the entrepreneurial space because it's it's kind of like in that you mm-hmm. need the 10,000 hours, but then there's also just you know, the, the, when people read that, that Malcolm Gladwell book, you know, about that, about the topic, it's like, they go, okay, I yeah. just got to put in my 10,000 hours. And it's like, I have very visceral personal experience. I was a high level swimmer and I put in 10,000 hours literally in a lane next to Michael Phelps. And the difference was my arms weren't long <laughs> enough. So wow. nothing, nothing I can do about that. So, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I got to say, you know I mean? Like that's, that's the genesis of the whole thing. But you guys have consistently kicked ass since then, which is, you know, th- that's a piece that, you know, it, it's, it's not a question of, you know, like, it just gets harder and harder to maintain. I don't know about that. I think that's the conception that it gets harder and harder to maintain. But at the same time, like, we're sharpening our sword every day. And we're getting better at what we do. And I would argue that, that actually things are getting easier right and to a certain degree um i think that that's not the case for every business and i've definitely observed it i'm trying to understand like what's different about design how come um we don't how come i've got a roadmap that's four years out in front of me that i look at and i'm like god if anything that's too full of good ideas and 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 that's the issue and that's a beautiful problem to have because things can stretch out as, as much as we need it to and I think that we have the benefit of the foresight into the fact that I didn't want this to be just a camera clip company. I remember when I was originally naming the company, and actually my girlfriend at the time, who's the mother of my daughter as well, um, helped me come up with the first. What I had was a word with a, an adjective that begins with a P. And the second word is design, kind of because that was my initials and I already had the logo for the PD thing. Um, and, and she came up with the word peak. But the, oh, what, the, oh. one, of the, one of the criterion for that was, uh, yeah. the criteria for that was that it be a general title and not, you know, not pigeonholes. And so as a result, we get to chase any product that is relatively adjacent to um, you know, where it started, which was a camera clip. Camera straps are a a nice uh, uh, lead in from that. Camera bags, of course, that makes sense. Tripods, sure, absolutely. And the things that we've got coming out, like you can imagine, like we 
we get wider and wider with our permissions mm-hmm. each time we build a product and do it really well. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe other companies that are like in, I don't know, food delivery. I, I, I don't know why companies struggle to find the next thing. But I want to call out that you started from the logo because <laughs> that's the thing that I do. Like I really am frequently with projects. Like I got a killer <laughs> logo and a killer name. Yeah, let's we just need the rest of this out. <laughs> well, and also, like, I don't know what that says about me that I started with the constraint of like it must have my initials in it. You know, like I at the <laughs> right. time I was thinking like I come from the construction world. Everyone names their construction company after their last name. And I was like, well, that's kind right. of dickish. <laughs> uh, maybe if I just like subtly throw my initials in there, that'd be cool. That's good. But then, well, that does mean all the logos are gonna be initials, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> anyway, it's a good name. But yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing that you know, one of the things I'm interested in talking about there that I've noticed that you guys have done and have always appreciated is you've stuck with Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Like I've backed a few projects on there that have then blown up. And then they go, okay, we're off to the races as a proper retail company now. We don't need you. And yeah. when I see those brands in the store, I'm still, I'm like, hey, I helped get them off the ground, but no love for me anymore. Right. Because they I, turn to venture capital frequently. <laughs> like name one that hasn't yeah. gone to, to VC after Kickstarter. They've, they've, they've used it as a springboard to get to VC. And that's something that I surely don't understand. I mean, I guess I do understand it. It must be the desire of the founder to like grow this thing to the moon to, you know, achieve that 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 status of grandeur. But it's so I don't know. I just think that that is such a fool's errand uh-huh. to 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 seek this meteoric rise that is inherently unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if you if that graph tilts up too fast, that means that it must plateau and plateaus suck emotionally, right? Like you can get your kicks from that high um, and invariably people do, but, but I don't know. It just, it, it, it can't keep going on forever unless I guess you're Bezos or something. Like that, but <laughs> Right. Well, eat more a, of uh, the world. Yeah. Which, which sort of relates to other stuff. Well, I you sound we like a, about, a founder sure. who is very in love with your company and what you do, which makes, I think, that choice probably a lot easier to do. That's a good point. Um, I am absolutely mm-hmm. in love with this company and for the people who work for it. Um, yeah, like genuine, real, profound love awesome. for, for my employees and friends who make up this company. That's probably a conversation that is not had enough about business and entrepreneurship and even all kinds of different funding, right? However, you're achieving your financial backing. At the end of the day, you're you're doing this because you need you need some money, right? You need a job. These other people need a job, right. and it's it's we don't need to segue it yet, but <laughs> it does. It, that vision speaks <laughs> to sustainability of all kinds, right? It it, it, it yeah, you're right. It is. It, it's the, the theme is definitely tied into sustainability. There's. There's, I have to imagine that the part of the connection with the Peak Design brand for your customers and your supporters is the fact that it's also, uh, it enables an art form. It enables something that I think is 
probably professional for many of your customers, but I would guess is a hobby or a, a part-time profession mm-hmm. for a lot of, for the majority of your customers. Yeah. And there's something so uh, fun and awesome. And in, I enjoy your product so much more because they come home and they go into that zone, right? It's like, oh, a new, my new clip is here. Right. I get to go do my fun hobby thing with it. <laughs> oh my God, absolutely. And, you know, that's, uh, I guess, the knock-on effect of chasing a, a product and solving a problem for my own mm-hmm. personal passion. Photography is something, and video is something that's just so easy to, I mean, it's it's been at the top of my my fun list for most of my life. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. And so, yeah, we're extremely fortunate, you know, by speaking with someone who was in the nursing home (laughs) business. He told me like, Peter, you have no idea how lucky you are. You're in the business (laughs) of fun. I'm in the business of dying. And it totally permeates um, every aspect of, of life. And you could chalk that up to a happy accident because I was I was trying to do more save the world stuff before with regenerative brakes for electrified trains, and I kind of stumbled into this um, this idea of, of the camera clip just because it was such a damn good idea. Um, but retrospectively, I'm happy that I have a happy totally. business. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, and I think. And I, and I kind of want to, I mean, it relates to the extent to which you have the artists and the community and the, you know, um, I think it's been interesting in my life because I was obsessed with Kickstarter projects for a long time. And now that I have started this particular company, I don't make enough money to be thinking about packing things left and right like I used mm-hmm. to. So I haven't paid as much attention with Kickstarter, but I think there's there's sort of this ideal that that you hit and have consistently leverage there that I talked about before with the sort of the community aspect where you have the first wave release of any of your products, because you keep going back to Kickstarter still ends up being the same people that, that even though you're raising a lot of money through that and you're having, you know, thousands of backers, it still feels like, Hey, we got a new thing. We're coming to you guys first. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like you have a newsletter where it's like, Hey, we're giving this to you a week early. Like you're literally saying to people and, and help us, you know, help us make this thing happen all over again, even though, you know, for sure at this point, you know, you have a, you have a P and L you've got, you know, like if you wanted to launch a thing, you could get it going off of your own books, Mm -hmm. I'd imagine, Mm -hmm. but it's still, you're still actively going out to people and saying, no, you guys are part of this with us and help us, you know, yeah, thing. we could launch it a different way, but there's no way it would be as successful as Kickstarter. Like, there's, there's, it's just not even close. And I don't care how big we get, that is that is the case. Conversion is better on Kickstarter, we, which is because we get to probably offer it at a, at a discount. Like, how many products beforehand do mm-hmm. you get to get at a discount? And then guaranteed to be the first ones to get it. Well, and I just, and I feel talking to you that it's also just, it's it's important and, you know, talking to you, but also in, it just permeates everything that your company does. Like you, you care about the people that, you know, the, the people that that draws in to the community and the, and the, and the way that makes the community feel like that matters too. And 
to be involved in that way. It's just, it's, it's, it's almost like an intangible thing. That's sort of like, if people don't appreciate, I'm, I'm almost not sure how to teach them how to appreciate that about a product and a community and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, it's just, there's, there's no question that if somebody backs something on Kickstarter, they are so much more deeply connected to the company and you can, that has positive effects in a couple of ways. I mean, the obvious one is that with that deep connection to the company, they're more likely to come back and buy the next product, but they're also more likely to tell their friends about this product because it's a story that they were a part of. And, um, I, I, I just, I don't think that you get that when you buy something from amazon.com. You don't, because I buy a lot. Of <laughs> and I don't remember the brand names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one of, one of the other interesting... Yes things with Kickstarter, and I think this was more timing rather than intended, but uh, the open source concept is often uh, attached to a lot of stuff that happens on Kickstarter. Um, and I don't necessarily mean like, here's how it's built or here are the designs and the drawings, but you, uh, although that's that's there too, right? A lot of the electronics projects and stuff that I, I see on there release the software mm -hmm. and they release the hardware drawings and, and everything's available. Hey, support us, buy this, maybe get the dev kit or get the finished product. Uh, but you also get the whole background, which I think, especially in today's age where more people are exposed to the the world of running businesses, it's so interesting to see that. It's so fun to be part of a product on Kickstarter where you get to walk, you get to follow through the manufacturing process. I think you guys did this. I, I can't remember explicitly, but a bunch of the products that I've backed and purchased on Kickstarter, you get... I don't know, 20, 30, 40, maybe a hundred emails if you want that give you the whole development mm -hmm. process. I mean, you learn about the business, you learn about how to start your own business, you learn about manufacturing, uh, you learn about uh, mm -hmm. suppliers and supply and demand and the economics of the product line. And that is so compelling and interesting. And the historical structure for business is I'm doing this secretly so someone doesn't steal it. And then I'm going to market it to you and I have to like trick you to buy it, <laughs> which is such a different concept. And yeah, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't trick come off. It didn't it. seem that way before, <laughs> but now that these new things are around, it's just such, it's, it's so much more organic. It is. And I think it's, um, it's sort of influencing the way bigger companies are, are doing things to it. To, to a certain degree, it's not like the cover has been blown off everything, but I think that also the internet has just pushed forward the notion mm. of transparency so much. And, and people almost assume that they have a right mm. now to know everything that's going on. And you know what? Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't disagree. I like, I have always lived my life, um, and run peak design with this notion of to have a look around. Mm -hmm. We got nothing to hide. And, and, and if there's something that you can learn by having a look under our hood, I'd like you to be able to do that. That's great. Yeah. I think it's, it's and a good, sort of good way of doing things. In line with that, there's a, so, well, this is just, this is just a funny one because <laughs> who else would look at this but a lawyer? Uh, you've done a thing that we've committed to at our company that I really appreciate, which is your terms, your terms on your legal page, <laughs> super readable. <laughs> Normal person can understand what's going on in your in your legalese on there, um, but I bumped into that because I was digging up the mission page. And you know, when we wrote which, that, we were thinking like, "Hey, for the person that's going to read this thing, like, let's <laughs> delight them <laughs> at every turn. Let's 
delight them. I don't know if you guys saw, we have this product called the Ultralight Conversion Kit. Um, and there are, it's these, it's this plastic um, thing that goes in the bottom of your tripod. Basically, you swap out the bottom four legs for this one little shorty leg. And then you have this ridiculously hmm. light tripod that's incredible for backpacking and stuff like that. And on the bottom of it, we're like, well, we've got some blank space here. What should we put on that? And the options were a small peak design logo, or there are three of them. One says party, one says on, one says on. <laughs> party on. And, you know, like if you grew up in the area that we did and you saw Wayne's World, and you see on the bottom of your ultralight conversion kit says party on Wayne, like, <laughs> you go, fuck yeah that's a company i want to be totally one of us that's right <laughs> that's what that that's says. right um so at some point i kind of want to run through the the mission stuff, yeah but there's a segue in here I've, I've always been curious and certainly you'll have better sense of this with your this this becomes our transition into talking about uh climate change and and activism and stuff like that but you know when you do I'm curious from a hardware manufacturing standpoint, if there's any sustainability impact either opened up or, or just sort of inherent in running everything through a, a crowdfunding mechanism repeatedly. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I don't know that I have any idea toward the specifics, but certainly it's a different, it's a different thing to say, we have this thing, we're going to prototype it. We're paying for it ourselves. Here's how it's going to impact our budget. Here's how that's going to impact manufacturing to have a community that's willing to jump in and shoulder some of that burden to make the thing that, that you've pitched to them exist. Like, I'm curious if, if you, you see any difference in that dynamic. That's sort of like, we should be crowdfunding everything because it's actually better for the planet. Like I've always wondered if that's mm. sort of anything that plays into this. Um, um, I, I don't know that I would, I haven't thought about it that much, but generally my take on the manufacturing space is that making a product is like even the people who try to make the product in the most sustainable way, whatever that may be. Um, I like to think about it as like, take Patagonia. They probably take more efforts than anyone to reduce the harm that their products uh, take on. But my guess is that they reduce their harm from, let's say, 100 bad points to about 78 bad points. And they are really scratching the bottom of the barrel there to get to 78 bad points. And that those things will change in time. And they directly relate to the electrification of industrial processes and the increased prevalence of renewable energy and storage to accommodate that 24 seven. Um, and so I, d but, but, but the fact of the matter is that like, you know, that's at the extreme end of, of doing the right thing. <laughs> and it still is like, you're just not reducing the vast majority of the harm here. And so let us not pretend that, that there is some way out there of making and shipping <laughs> shit around the world that is like near free to the environment. It's just not, mm -hmm. not at this point. And so, no, I guess I'd, I'd actually have a slightly more cynical um, approach to it. And, and that is that like um, crowdfunding may encourage you because you're closer to the customer to 
do the best job that you can with respect to sustainability. But I think that um, so many of the factors, especially for smaller companies, are well out of the hands of the smaller companies. Um, you know, I think it's easy to get the low hanging fruit, but it's really hard to switch factories over to cleaner industrial processes. Um, so I don't know if that answered the question exactly, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> it can't all be bright and shiny in the conversation here. Right. I mean, the reality, if you look at it is crowdfunding has probably enabled more crappy, you know, Josh keys produced by, you know, the, the cheapest means possible with no mind for sustainability, <laughs> then it has produced, you know, quality, caring, uh, no, companies. no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Oh. And, but <laughs> I guess one of, one of the points I'm trying to make is that the producing that cheap tchotchke, um, in today's world might not actually be all that different than producing mm -hmm. that, that Patagonia fleece. And that's not to say that the Patagonia method isn't extremely important in, in leading the cutting edge of what factories need to do to approve themselves. And I'd say that I'd argue that their social standards are far more important or, 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 or not important, but effectual than their sustainability standards right now. I mean, giving people a happy life by giving them a manufacturing job that pays adequately, that hmm. is where rubber hits the road. And that's one of the best places where we follow in their footsteps to make sure that we're paying factory workers above uh, the, the, the required amounts. Um, and, you know, the, the, the sustainability and the climate piece, um, I, I think we're going to have that segue in a little <laughs> bit here. And I don't want to blow the lid off just at this point, but I have more. To <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I think this it keeps is trying to pop at in. this point. Like it, we, the, the reality is, and this is, this has come up with a number of our guests, you know, who, who it's either it's because what we believe as like scientists and we've chased, you know, we've chased our guests or it's because the tide is turning toward the understanding that this is the case. But like, uh, I think uh, my generation in particular was early on sort of inundated with this, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle as the thing that would solve everything. And that's not the case because you start to look at you look at companies like patagonia that are doing the best they can possibly do and like you said they're still just shipping shit around the planet and they have to do that so the only options left are to try to find ways to support actually taking carb you know like whether whether it's literally or metaphorically you have to draw down you have to take carbon out of the atmosphere you have to clean shit up that that's already mm -hmm. dirty or else we're just not going to get there in time mm -hmm. um and it sounds like the same, you know, the same thing you're saying is as much as we want to say, oh, well, uh, community this or crowdsourcing that or whatever, like you still are taking materials and making a thing out of it. And even if those are recycled materials, like they still, and then they got to get shipped to where they got to get to. And then, so, mm -hmm. you know, and frequently just recycled no way around. materials have a higher carbon mm -hmm. footprint than virgin materials. Let's, let's not forget that. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a heartbreaking yeah. thing to find out for somebody of the triple R, uh -huh. you know, generation. Uh -huh. Oh, all I have to do is recycle. It's like, no, they have to bleach that before they can reuse it. The bleach is worse right. than more That's right. paper. Well, <laughs> so, um, uh, there's a lot to say on those topics. Before we before we launch into that, though, I feel like we were tantalizingly close to <laughs> saying something that's pretty important to me about 
about peak design and the way that it's run. And I think this does pertain to sustainability in, in a number of ways. And that's that when we were writing our mission in 2016, um, I was very adamant about uh, kind of a, a preamble to that mission. And we call that the purpose. And the purpose of peak design is for the employees of peak design to live happy and fulfilled lives. Mm-hmm. Like that is the driving factor of all we do at peak design. Yeah, we want to be on the right side of history and we want a shot at trying to help save the world. No doubt about it. But importantly, what we're trying to do at peak design is enjoy our lives and enable others to enjoy their lives as well. Um, You know, that extends to our contract employees in the Philippines and to our contract workers in Vietnam and in China. And at every turn, we hope that the, the primary result of peak design's existence is a job for someone that can permit and, and, and foster happiness and fulfillment. Because I do imagine that we probably only have one life to live. And I also imagine that a life best lived is the one that has sort of as much joy under the under the curve of time as possible and there's there's no such thing as pure joy all the time and happiness is a is a wave function you know but i think that 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 having a focus on <laughs> time is marching on and if we don't focus on enjoying ourselves on this planet we are missing the point so let's put that at the very very top of the pyramid um and, and, and the most incredible result of that is that virtually no one has left peak design in the years that it's been in existence. And that, and that continuity of kind of tribal knowledge, I think, has just contributed so greatly to the success of the company. And um, I hope more companies will adopt that. Um, well, and I think it... it- that sort of gets back to our conversation about the intangibles and the sort of this, you know, success and the hunter versus hunted and all that kind of stuff we were talking about. Like, I think the, it's not easy to have the commitment to that. You know, when you're, when you're, when you run a business that is inherently in a capitalist system, it takes, it's, it's, it's conviction and, you know, uh, presence of mind and awareness and, and things that are just hard to maintain to keep th- that as the, you know, the end all and be all of the whole thing, you know, in a world where it's, if you have shareholders, they're going, yeah, I don't care yeah. more money. <clears throat> right. Right. And, and so, you know, I mean, I think, it, um, it's a good place to talk about the mission and everything. Right. I mean, that's the, the reality is, and this comes up when we talk about like automation and stuff, like as more and more jobs, sort of go away you get to this weird space of like how are we supposed to conceive of the purpose of human life because to a point at least presented to us through our childhood it was like well you go to school then you get a job and then you work that job and that's your purpose and it's sort of like now you have very much a thing of going okay what if that's 
not true because the jobs could be done by robots. And I'm, and I'm speaking as someone who is using robots to, to do right. lawyer work. So like, <laughs> you know, um, and my answer for the lawyers is, well, I want you to do something more fulfilling. I want you to go talk to the humans about the emotional side of lawyering instead of processing paperwork all day. And some of them go, yeah, but I like the paperwork. It's like, well, okay. It's but- funny. I, I, I just, I've never had confusion about the purpose <laughs> of life or, the, or, or like the meaning of life. Um, I always thought that was kind of a funny question because it just has seemed obvious to me that the only real resource is time. Um, we live a certain number of years. And the value of our life, I think, is quite easily calculated of, did you enjoy yourself? Or how much of that time did you spend enjoying yourself? And I guess that, like, you, you might ascribe that to, like, deep hedonism. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I don't really feel that way. <laughs> I was going to say, philosophically, that makes you hate yeah. But I mean, technically yeah, speaking, it's not it, with everything that's that's the doing, case, I think whatever. I'm actually comfortable <laughs> with that. If that makes me a, a hedonist. Um, but uh, I think that one of the, the, the wonderful things about the world and the way it works is that one of the easiest ways to create joy for yourself is to create joy for others. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is kind of the, the, the wing nut that holds it all together. Um, so like caring for your family is, you know, like it evolutionarily, that was, it's, it's beneficial. It creates joy when you take care of your kids. And when you take care of your elders and when you create friendships. So I feel like evolution has very much set us up for hedonism to be the driver of and kind of the propellant of both capitalism and (laughs) and goodness. Yeah. So Peter, how, I assume you've spent some time thinking about this. uh, How do we bring the viewpoint of operating businesses for the good of people to more businesses? And what happens if we are successful? If we made every business focused on that, what would happen? That's a great question. And well, one thing, I think you'd have considerable economic growth. Hmm. Um, and I mean, if, if my company and if Patagonia and if, if like there are an unbelievable amount of examples of companies that have focused on returning um, a portion, not all of it, but a portion mm-hmm. of proceeds to the environment and the people of the world, those companies win. Mm-hmm. And so more companies doing that, um, obviously there's not, you know, we, we I'd love it to get to the point where we need to compete with each other on the basis mm-hmm. of how much good did you do in right. order to win customers' minds. Right. And I don't think that's unreasonable. I think that we should get to that point. And I think that I have similarly, though, been fed up with, I mean, f- I mean, really fed up with, with greenwashing bullshit. Hmm. Um, and the notion that plastic straws are the thing that are ending our planet. <laughs> and like that there's, <laughs> we need to focus on what really, what really matters, the existential mm-hmm. things here. Um, 
And um, we need to spend a little more time looking at graphs and understanding <laughs> the big macro trends, not yeah. every micro trend, but just a couple of graphs that are really, really yep. important. So I don't know. One of these moments we're going to launch into the <laughs> future is. So yeah, I was yeah, going to say, I sure. think there's a good segue here happening. So one of the, uh, what I've been doing for the last 10 years is essentially tracking businesses. I write software that uh, looks at businesses. Originally, my my company was man, it was in manufacturing. We were tracking uh, U.S. manufacturing companies. So this was 10 years ago when web crawlers were still kind of novel. We were downloading all the information we could find about U.S. manufacturing and and categorizing it and finding what the companies did and technologies they worked with and who worked there and how could we help these companies share their information and innovate more quickly. And <clears throat> as I've been uh, myself uh, become uh, obsessed with uh, what's going on with our planet and, and climate change in particular, I've been looking for ways that I can tie in this experience with business data, understanding business, what are they doing? And so I think this might have something to do with, with your organization, um, but how do we shift the metrics and how do we get the information that we need to, to bring this stuff to light, right? How do, because your business, you purposefully uh, are outspoken about sustainability and about making good decisions that are good for your employees and good for the environment and good for your supply chain. What do we have to start monitoring and looking at and how do we get that information so that the world at large can start really truthfully voting with their dollars, right? That, that seems oh. like the way we make it. We can make huge, huge strides. I've got an idea. Um, how much did you give away divided by what were your net profits? Hmm. Interesting. Um, that seems like a reasonable metric. And I think that money and in, in, in profits in particular are still a wonderful, if nothing else, I mean, money serves and currency serve a lot of different purposes that we could probably go deep on, but we'll save that for when we have Neil Stevenson on the podcast. <laughs> um, but it is a tremendous scorekeeper of success. How well did you do a certain thing? Yeah. And I'd be curious to know about how much money a company gives away versus their net profits, which is, of course, subtracted from profits, you know, um, but I would wager that there is some sweet spot where the more you give away, um, the more your profit goes up because you've acquired more customers uh -huh. on account of the fact that you're being seen as a good actor in this world. Right. And I would be shocked if that trend isn't heading upward. It, seems, it seems like it, which is great. Yeah. Do you, what do you think is driving that? Is that consumers becoming aware and being able to make smarter decisions or excuse me, make decisions that drive business in a direction they want the businesses to go? I think that it, it, it is a, it is representative of having achieved a level of what I like to refer to as like advanced capitalism, mm -hmm. which is actually far more akin to socialism. Mm -hmm. we've, we've gotten so efficient at capitalism that we're starting to realize, holy shit, if we just continue with the, the very, very direct approach to capitalism, and don't affect it with things like taxation, then we are now going to grow the size of the pie, but we're going to string it out. And people are going to get richer on the top and be stagnant on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And and I think we have the 
fortunately in that time period, you also have the luxury, especially when you're on the top, to think about it more thoughtfully and say, hey, this isn't right. This isn't sustainable. We need to have an interjection here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, in, and in my view, that, that interjection is essentially taxation. And companies that choose to tax themselves and redirect that money where they desire to do so, um, I think is extremely powerful. So to sum that up, how did we get to the place where doing good is seen as good by consumers? I think we've just advanced there. Hmm. And I'd say that there's a couple, there's a handful of other countries, basically like the Nordic countries mm-hmm. that, uh, that got rich real quick early in the day and have already realized this and have very homogenous populations where it was easy to indoctrinate these principles. And um, I think they're winning. So, yeah, so it feels like, you know, when you talk about when, when Brian asks you about data and about metrics and stuff, it's, it's, there's an interesting sort of alignment with the other experts we have on, on to talk about climate change where like the, anything that could even be presented as greenwashing is like not we're beyond that being helpful and, and, and anything that, you know, the, 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 the traditional things that companies present as sustainable, like they don't even, they're not going to make the dent that needs to be made. And it seems to me that what you are saying when you, when you say, well, I want this divided by that. And that would be the metric is like, if we could present a score that actually represents the extent to which you're just paying for other experts that know more than you to work on this problem. Because really what's going on is like, I'm busy running a legal tech company. Like I don't have time to understand how to best deploy capital to solve this world war two scale problem. Um, and there are experts that do. So it makes sense that what you would have is a representation of the extent to which my company is, is, you know, laying off a portion of our profits to uh, functionally check growth against the idea that we need to sustain this, this, you know, almost wartime effort to not have to not (laughs) boil to death on our planet. Um, but that almost comes back to like a, like a score to, you know, like a, like a, like a possible metric, like a score you could actually envision on a product that would represent the extent to which uh, a company is committed to this thing that has, you know, now become a buzz term in this way that I, I'm like, okay, I can see big CEOs of the big banks and stuff, you know, these, these consortiums of giant company CEOs starting to talk about it. And I really hope they're sincere when they say, they're trying to effectuate a shift from maximizing the value for the shareholders to maximizing mm-hmm. value for the stakeholders. That is to say all of their employees, everyone else that is impacted by the tendrils of their business, not just the people mm-hmm. slick enough to buy their stocks. Um, and then, and then I also really hope that that represents a shift in our sort of conception of what a company is supposed to be as an economic tool. Cause Really, like a company is a, is, is a construct of of government and taxation structures and things like that. And so, you know, the mutually the mutual benefit corporation is the full, you know, the full name. Like the idea is supposed to be, oh well, we'll let you all band together and do things and be taxed in certain ways because it's better if everybody works together. And then we've, you know, we're we're I I hope we're transitioning out of this phase where the idea of who that mutual 
benefit is meant to, to, you know, help is just the people have, who have bought into the business rather than like, no, the government is allowing this thing to exist and giving it special tax status. It should benefit everyone within that system that is allowing to it exist, it to exist and behave and giving it special rules to sustain it. Like it's not so that the 10 people at the top can make the most money possible off of that corporation. Um, you know, and I really hope that shift is upon us. And I love the idea of having a number that would show the extent mm -hmm. to which a company is actually committed to that. Cause like, I don't care if Jamie Dimon is telling me that JP Morgan is committed to it. Like, how do I know that for real without doing homework? Uh, I, I, I don't agree. have time to do I agree. And, and, <laughs> like, and so. you know, like you were saying, Brian's like, oh, I wish there was some metric. And I think that at the end of the day, it, it comes down to how much did you give away? And the course is another component to that. It's like, well, how efficiently were those dollars spent? What did you give it away to? And what did they go mm -hmm. and, and work on? Um, that is important. No doubt about it. Um, but my, if I had to pick one place for all the dollars of giving to go for companies right now, and there could be only one, it would be towards specifically taking carbon out of the air. <laughs> like that's, that's it. That's the one. Yeah. Um, I mean, we need a lot more things um, and, and, and taxes need to do that. And I think that taxes need to more efficiently educate kids um, and everything like that. But like, let's just talk about corporate giving the things that we're not being asked to be taxed for right now. How come we are still allowed to put carbon dioxide into the air without any kind of expectation that we clean it up? It's crazy. It's crazy. And it, 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 it is a relic of the time when, you know, before we learned how to scrub coal plants and, and, and other industrial processes and things like that, like a bunch of shit used to come out of smokestacks. Mm -hmm. And then we figured out catalytic converters and all these other things to um, clean that up. And it was like, oh my God, beautiful. It's just carbon dioxide that's coming out <laughs> of the top of these things. And it's odorless. It's invisible. Yep. You can breathe the shit. It doesn't hurt you. Like we have hit free <laughs> energy sneaky. forever. And Rather inconveniently, over time, we've learned this shit's a bummer and, and, <laughs> and, and it's going to be problematic. And yet, and so I think that a lot of people have said, oh, this is a bummer. And they've sat there and they've been wringing their hands. What are we going to do about it? Because mm -hmm. we know that closing the factories and shutting down the power plants, that would be far far worse than climate change <laughs> in my opinion yeah. i don't i don't know that for a fact it's a great perspective that those those extended like you've got war you've got famine you've got all the the, the, the worst visions of climate change immediately mm -hmm. instead of yeah. over a long protracted period of time where humans might be able to engineer solutions out of it and so i just do not uh, like the idea of the overnight shutdown. And, and so then we are left with this problem of what do we do with the carbon that keeps coming out of there? 
And the question of like, gosh, is there any other way to take carbon out of the air? And the answer is yes, absolutely. We do it every single day. It's called photosynthesis. Um, and, and other techniques as well. But photosynthesis is, is incredibly good at sequestering carbon. And the notion that if you were to pay money to encourage more photosynthesis, whether that's by protecting forests, buying up plots of land and irrigating it and growing forests, growing mosses, like there's all sorts of ways that we can cleverly spend money to rebalance things, right? Mm -hmm. To create more carbon sequestration through this process of photosynthesis. And um, to me, that's really, it's, it's, that's a really simple thing to do. It makes a lot of sense. And it seems like if we can, if we can sequester enough carbon, we should be able to sequester enough carbon that way to mitigate the fossil fuels that we still have burning right now while we still have to burn fossil fuels. Carbon offsets. That's what these are. They're carbon offsets. And I, and like, I hate to be the guy who comes on the podcast that starts saying, guys, carbon offsets are going to save the world. But guys, I really think that carbon <laughs> offsets are an incredibly important part of saving the world. Well, and I think it's it's easy to think of uh, taxes and things like that as sort of a, a hassle, and then and then it's and I think it's also fair to look at the perspective of kind of the generations before us. Like you said it, you know, perfectly, and the way we usually say it is like, well. Your neighbors would be pretty mm -hmm. mad if you just started dumping your trash in the in the street, but because we can't see the carbon, you know, and so like part of the you know, I mean, there's 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 part of the problem right now is essentially our country is run by a generation that's going, God, guys, we got lead out mm -hmm. of gasoline. Like, you know how bad the smog used to be in L.A. And then we're going, yeah, but there's this sightless, odorless thing that's kind of a pretty big problem too. And they're like, we're just tired, <laughs> like, and we're, you know. And so, so part of it's about like there isn't time for that generation rollover. And 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 the reason I like to pretend, like, present it like a warlike effort is like when you're talking about a war, you don't get to be tired. So when you go like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, man, like, doesn't matter. Got to keep, got to keep doing the thing because otherwise. Mm -hmm the planet is lost. Um, and it's, you know, and, and the, what we try to do when we talk about it on here is reframe it more like a moonshot, you know, as much as I talk, like war makes it sound scary. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone is inspired by the fact that in 10 years, we got people to the moon. Like it's a solvable problem with science and with things we know already, even though we still don't really get photosynthesis. Like it's kind of magical to us. We haven't been able to replicate it. That's mm -hmm. weird and, and magical, but it doesn't matter because we can plant trees and they do it for us. Um, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's really about, it is that carbon offset, you know, it, it, it I, I ran, I've uh, ran to a project recently. Yeah. It's called project ran uh, Y combinator company that just, just came out and they're, they're focused on, you know, personal offset stuff. Hey, run this calculator, figure out what you should offset $25 a month. Like that's a really interesting approach to that kind of thing. But, but again, it gets back to that Is idea of like, there's corporate responsibility. Then there's even just your personal 
you know, sort of assessment of like, okay, what's my score for funding this moonshot effort to take carbon out of the atmosphere where like, and I, and I really like the moonshot analogy Mm -hmm. because the same 10 years it took Mm -hmm. us to get to the moon, that's what we've got to figure this out. And, and it's doable because honestly, I think it's easier than getting people to the moon. (laughs) Like what a, what a feat of engineering. Absolutely. (laughs) The the technology in this space is, is decently understood. Again, a lot of, a lot of it's planting stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and or replacing fossil fuels with renewable, with renewable generation and installing battery storage. Like the, the things that we need to do are well understood the thing it will take to change is money and a lot of it, but not that like, but not so much that we need to shape the foundation of our economy. I want to share a few stats with you guys. Yeah, please. Do. Um, <laughs> the amount of tons of CO2 that humans pump out is about 56 billion tons. Um, Tough to conceptualize that, but 56 gigatons of CO2, that's what we put out. We got 7.5 billion people on the planet. Um, divide that up. That means that for every individual there, there's about seven and a half tons of carbon dioxide per year, per person. What does that look like in actual physical space? Um, well, you can imagine a <laughs> cube about 26 feet um, in each dimension, that's one ton of carbon. Stack seven of those on top of each other, and you've got yourself a nice, like, 200 foot tall building that is uh, 26 feet by 26 feet. That's every individual. Now, of course, it doesn't doesn't work like that. The vast majority of the world has a pretty tiny carbon footprint. The rich people of the world have a huge carbon footprint, and it tracks beautifully with with income. The amount of money that you make is very, very tightly correlated with the amount of carbon that you end up putting up into the world hmm. that you're responsible for. But the good news is like, let's just take all the money in the world, gross world product. It's about $88 trillion. That equates to about $11,700 per person if everybody made the same amount. And so what that means is that for every of product that we put out there into the world, we're creating a ton of carbon. Hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. if you, you know, you can, you can roughly calculate that to, if you make a hundred thousand dollars in a year, then you're responsible for um, about, let's see, need need to do that, need to do that math real quick. But you know, something like 18 um, tons, tons of carbon. The, 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 the point that I'm trying to get to here is if we have $88 trillion and we have 56 billion tons to get rid of, 1% of $88 trillion, um, that equals $88 billion. Um, or excuse me, 8.8, 8.8 trillion dollars. And if we spend 1% 
of our gross world product on trying to reduce carbon, then we can afford a price of about $20 a ton to reduce carbon. And the technologies that are out there in the world today, whether they're growing trees or they're capturing methane, um, they're being done for less than $20 a ton, considerably less than $20 a ton. And this is probably a long-winded and probably not very succinct way of saying that Carbon mitigation on a broad scale is actually affordable in today's dollars. We don't need advancements in technology. We just need a willingness to contribute about 1% of the money we take in towards carbon mitigation. And if it is really, honestly, this huge, giant problem that we're all existentially afraid of, how could we not dedicate 1% of our GDP the Manhattan Project took 10% of GDP to pull off. This looks like a 1% problem. An order of magnitude, less money today to dedicate towards it. And businesses, in, in the absence of governments telling us, you need to clean up your carbon, businesses should be saying today, you know what? We ought to clean up our carbon. And my, note, my, my, my thought is that the companies that get ahead of this are going to have the opportunity to succeed over the companies that don't in the eyes of the public. And so mm -hmm. what, what I've been working most fervently on for the past year is the development of a label. And I hate to say it, it's an eco label, not like the world needed another one of those, but <laughs> I think we needed at least just one more of those. And that label is called climate neutral. Yeah. more specifically certified climate neutral. And when you see the climate neutral label on a product or being advertised with a company, it indicates that that company has measured their carbon footprint reasonably well, taken mm -hmm. whatever, taken all pragmatic steps towards reducing their carbon footprint. But then I think most importantly, has offset the rest of by financing carbon offset projects. Mm -hmm. And if that were to become mm -hmm. the expectation of all companies in this world, we would have a very different looking carbon landscape. And you would probably indicate to government that like, hey, businesses are voluntarily doing this. It's time to put some of this shit into law. And so that's the thrust mm -hmm. of this organization. Um, Peak Design has already offset all of our carbon back to the history of peak design and mm -hmm. it just wasn't that expensive. You know, we put hundreds of thousands of dollars into it, um, about $400,000 to date. Um, that's a reasonable amount though. Yeah. I've, I've looked at numbers, uh, for a handful of companies that are for my company and for companies that friends run and it is surprisingly less expensive than you would think. Um, to offset your carbon and then mm -hmm. for your household as well. Um, when you, when you hear that and you run through that, it's hard to not almost be angry that the tone of the conversation is what it is right now, at least politically. Um, when, when people act like you can't do anything or, you know, have an almost a denial mm -hmm. reaction, like, Oh, this is so scary. It can't be a thing. It, you know? And it's like, mm -hmm. uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but 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 broadly speaking, people don't right. know this. 
Yeah. People don't know that carbon offsets are available for five dollars a ton. People don't really know what a carbon offset yeah. is frequently. As I, well. I'm I'm surprised. Well, I was I was surprised. I tell this story all the time, but when I when I first really started paying attention to what was going on, I was surprised how little I actually knew, despite having kind of been uh, brought up in a in a progressive environment, teaching me about environmentalism and recycling and all that. Once I really wrapped my head around the issue and recognized the carbon is the issue and then saw the complexity of how that ties in with everything in the modern world. Uh, then I, un- then I started to understand it. So there's, there's definitely, there's a connection that most people aren't, aren't making, right? Most people think, Oh, solar panels and electric cars. Cool. That's, that's the, that's the thing, but that's, that's a little piece of it. So, um, so what does, uh, so climate, climateneutral.org is the website for, uh, for this, organization so you do you provide uh certification for these businesses they come to you and and like present their reports and then you uh certify them how does how does your organization work that's right right now the we're we're gathering the list of companies that are signing a memorandum of understanding Mm -hmm. that says that they will offset their 2019 Mm -hmm. footprint um and that means that they'll go through a period of it mimics the tax period. Only instead of April fifteenth, we picked April twenty first, mm-hmm. uh, Earth Day. And cool. between January one and April twenty one, you're you have to measure your footprint. And climate neutral is going to be helping measure that footprint. Um, life cycle analyses of carbon um, can either be extremely complex. Or they can be they can be relatively easy um, if you're willing to apply um, economic data largely to your mm-hmm. carbon footprint and uh, and appreciate that counting precisely counting all the beams of carbon um, of carbon usage is not only impractical it's it's impossible mm-hmm. and and so we are creating we're working with a guy named Gregory Norris out of Harvard and MIT, who's one of the world's experts on life cycle analysis, who very much understands and appreciates that a shorthand form of carbon accounting is very useful for companies. Um, and so we help you measure your footprint. We take a look at your reduction goals and make sure that you are taking the most pragmatic steps that you as a business can take towards reducing your footprint, which frankly to me feels like a no brainer. You shouldn't mm-hmm. reduce your footprint, especially when you're going to start paying for it. And then thirdly, you have to buy verified carbon offsets. And so we are the ones who decide um, which standards we're going to use. Gold standard, it's a, it's a nonprofit run out of Switzerland. Um, uh, Vera runs a program called the Verified Carbon Standard. They're out of D.C. And the Climate Action Reserve out of California are three registries that create and approve and audit carbon offset projects to make sure that they are um, one, a verifiably carbon reducing technology that does so permanently and additionally, meaning it would not have happened if it weren't for the financial interjection. Um, and they also make sure that the, the, you know, they're on the ground making sure that these projects actually happen. So we make sure that, that companies are measuring their footprint appropriately reducing what they can, and then buying the correct offsets. And if they do those three things, they achieve a label for whole entity carbon neutrality, climate Mm -hmm. neutrality, as we call it. Um, 
And, you know, I was up with REI uh, last week, um, trying very hard to get them on board. They're very seriously considering this. And they asked, you know, like, hey, can we do it for just our stores? Because REI has a footprint related to running mm-hmm. their stores. Um, and we held firm and said, no, this has to be for the entire entity's mm-hmm. footprint. That is, this needs to be the new low bar mm-hmm. for sustainability. And I like REI is going to have to spend somewhere between three and $5 million if they want to offset their mm-hmm. whole carbon footprint. And, you know, they already give away about 8 million bucks. Um, I cannot imagine that there's a better place for them to spend that money than directly offsetting their mm-hmm. footprint. And then they also get to be the gatekeeper for which products make it in this right. world. Yep. And they could certainly apply as they did with their restrictive substances list. And they killed it with that. They did such a mm-hmm. good job getting companies to just not use bullshit materials in their products. They could do the same thing with carbon and say, unless you're offsetting your whole carbon footprint, REI is not going to sell your products. That would probably think of the knockoff effects Mm -hmm. of that. Okay. Suddenly you probably induce about 50 million tons of carbon offsets onto the market. And that is the entire size of the voluntary carbon market right now. And what you do when you create that kind of demand for carbon offsets is that you induce people who need to generate that supply. So all of a sudden you spurned all this economic interest in carbon offsets. And then people with carbon offset developers with shovels are ready to go and create new projects. And that puts also more scrutiny on the industry with, with press. And that's a good thing. We need Mm -hmm. this to be scrutinized. We need auditors to be, really good at their job, making sure these carbon offsets are really taking place. And you'd have this almost overnight maturation of the market where the carbon offset starts being utilized as it was originally envisioned, which is this commodity good, the ton of carbon dioxide or equivalency, Mm -hmm. meaning you can knock out other greenhouse gases just as readily as you can knock out carbon and there's an equivalency. Um, Companies should be absolutely responsible for purchasing that commodity, which is a ton of carbon dioxide. If you're going to put it up in the air, you should take it out of the air. Period. I can tell you as an REI co-op member since probably 1991, I would gladly knock my dividend down a few percentage points voluntarily. I'll check that box. They put it on the website, you know, to, just I'm taking, like, this uh, off, taking this I'm, on. <laughs> I, might, I might tell them this much. Um, um, and, you know, they, they, they did a, an amazingly successful campaign where they shut down their store on Black Friday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to try to encourage them to keep their store open. <laughs> and they probably make <laughs> enough money to offset their carbon footprint. And what's the more meaningful right. story there? Yeah. That's a great, that's a great one. The numbers that you bring to this conversation are really, really helpful. You, you walk that out really nicely. So what about, so your organization is specifically for brands and companies. Uh, what about mm-hmm. people who are individuals? What can home homeowners and families be doing? 
the same damn thing. Um, we, you know, the, the idea of the individual certification is kind of on the, um, it's on the roadmap for climate cool. neutral. Um, and it's an important part of it. And there are some other organizations that are doing this right now and we'll probably partner up with them. We have no desire to be competitive mm-hmm. in this landscape. We, there's, there's not, this isn't about winning, you know, um, but we're going to launch climate neutral publicly with a Kickstarter campaign, <laughs> obviously. Um, and that's probably going to happen in October. And at that time, we are going to encourage for people to buy the reward instead of paying money and receiving mm-hmm. a tripod. People are going to pay money and purchase cool. offsets, which has not been mm-hmm. tried on Kickstarter before. Um, and the reason I think it'll work is because I think that people are going to be blown away, A, that offsets exist, mm-hmm. B, that they're affordable, C, that their entire carbon footprint can be knocked out for a few hundred dollars in many cases. And I think that that's very meaningful. And we're talking about the yeah. whole thing. And if, if everyone realizes that, gosh, if this is a thing that everybody did every year and we had that much money flooding to carbon mitigation mm-hmm. that we can solve mm-hmm. climate change. Shit, Shit, yeah. 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 Cause that's the, that's the biggest issue right now. People ask me what they should do. Uh, and there's not always a great answer, but this one, when you look at the numbers makes a huge difference, right? A couple hundred dollars. What's, what's the difference for a lot of people? Offset your whole yeah. carbon footprint. Like what should, what should I do about climate change? The answer should be offset. And the, the extension of that is go fund people to make our natural resources more beautiful and more, more wonderful plant trees, clean up rivers, bring wildlife back. Right. That's where a lot of that money will go towards. So it's That's a beautiful right. vision. That's right. Conservation and carbon offsets are highly tied in. The beauty of the carbon offset mechanism is that it is incredibly versatile. You know, a carbon offset can be, you know, there's, there's a, a bunch of companies, some in, mostly European, that are trying to suck in air and solidify carbon, right? Create a, a carbon solid. Um, that's a form mm-hmm. of a carbon offset. It's a little yeah. too expensive right now. They're not doing it for less than a hundred bucks a ton. It's cheaper to just grow a tree, buy the land, secure mm-hmm. it, grow the tree. You know, that's that's also carbon sequestration. But the beauty of it is that you're not tied to any particular technologies. And as the as the price that people are willing to pay for a carbon offset changes over time, you green light different technologies. Or you might green light the same technology, like say erecting wind turbines. Erecting wind turbines in like places where you're taking offline diesel gen sets, like you're knocking out a lot of carbon there. So it's actually from a dollar's perspective, extremely efficient to put up a wind turbine or a solar array with storage. Um, but it might be less uh, carbon beneficial if you're in a region where natural gas is powering things right now, because there's not as much carbon to knock off there. However, there comes a certain price point where it does get greenlit where even that relatively low amount of carbon by the natural gas being put out there can be offset by a $20 a ton price in carbon. And it's this beautiful utilization of free market economics that got us into this, that can get us out of this. 
Well, that feels like, you know, a good place to wrap up as we're kind of <laughs> over time already, as much as I want to keep the conversation going. This has been, this has been awesome. Thanks for, you know, thanks for coming on talk all things, peak design, climate, climate neutral. Yeah, everything. You bet. So great. We'll, I was expecting to do sustainability and, and good choices with businesses, but I didn't know that this was going to pop out. It's uh, both funny to me and makes me happy. <laughs> well, we've been, we've been kind of in the background working on this for well over a year. And um, I am very excited for my job to become very involved with exactly what I'm doing awesome. right here, getting the word out. It's awesome. This. It's a great story to so, tell. And I hope you continue to be as uh, outspoken with this as you've been with uh, everything else about your business. So, And I think, and I think you know, what I was thinking when you were talking about using Kickstarter for this was really mm -hmm. not just that you you're the person to understand if that's <laughs> truly the case or not for one, but also like that feels like the next evolution of the ideal that got everyone excited about crowdfunding to begin with. Like mm -hmm. the oh, hurdle mm -hmm. of it has to be a tax or not enough people get involved is not a real thing anymore. And we really can take this massive action, millions of dollars and, hundreds of thousands of people at a time that, you know, go places other than, than political action committees and, and, and mm -hmm. stuff yeah. like that, you know? So, so, uh, you know, Very thank cool. you for doing that work for one, <laughs> you know, and thank you for coming thank on you. here to Pleasure. talk about it. We'll, uh, we'll put links to everything relevant and all the various things we talked about in the show notes. Um, and otherwise, thank you to everybody for hanging out for another engineering episode. Uh, I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Peter. Take it easy, everybody. Bye.